0: When I was playing uh, sports uh, in high school, and then obviously watching sports for as long as I have, there is a term they use in sports um, where you will hear the announcer say, man, he really laid it all out there for that one. You might see it in baseball, a diving catch. This would be what it's like to lay it all out there. Like, you are going parallel to the ground. You are... No, There's no inch of you that's still remaining holding on to solid ground, uh, and you are laying it all out there. Um, and when I was in high school, there was a guy who played basketball who today is probably, you don't want him um, making national peace talks, but Dennis Rodman was a, um, a basketball player that I loved watching play as quirky as he was, as crazy as he was, he was someone you understood on the basketball court who would lay it all out there. There were about a billion pictures of him diving out of bounds trying to catch basketballs. There are a lot of professional athletes who know that if you lay it all out there, there's a potential for getting hurt. There's a potential for getting injured. There's a potential for your career being over. And so you'll see a lot of guys who won't lay it all out there. Um, As you get older in life, you're not Willing to lay it all out there because it might get broke if you lay it out there. Um, like, you, you know, when I was in high school, I would be the guy who would take a charge. I would dive out of bounds because who are you trying to impress? The coach. Uh, when we just got done with this year's City League at 38 years old, well, Jason, why didn't you take the charge? Not doing it. <laughs> Jason, why didn't you dive for that loose ball? Not doing it. Uh, I got, uh, I got uh, bones that break easier. I'm not doing it. And in life, They talk about putting it out there, laying it all out there. And that's where we get romantic comedies from, where when somebody puts it all out there and it's thrown back in their face, it's really awkward. Um, Laying it all out there is dangerous. It is not something that you know how people are going to respond, but you're just like, I'm laying it all out there, and feel free to throw it right back. Um, This morning in our Man of Action, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, we are looking at the life of a woman who laid it all out there. And it's an interesting encounter. It's a difficult encounter and kind of giving you some back up to where Jesus is. Last week, John shared with us Jesus's encounter with the Pharisees, the Pharisees who who were worried that the disciples weren't washing their hands. And Jesus is like, look, it's not the food that goes into your stomach that makes you unclean. Your heart." things that come out of your heart, it, that's, that's where the uncleanliness is, and you have to recognize that the nation of Israel really, really, really had a staunch line on what was clean and what was unclean, what you could touch, what you could be around, and what you could not touch, and what you could not be around, because they were worried about being made unclean, and so Jesus kind of shatters the framework that the Pharisees approach him with, in saying, look, it's, it's what comes from within that actually really messes you up. And John talked about the need for a new heart. And see, in society, we like to say it's all the circumstances around us that have really messed us up. Now, granted, how you grew up, the narrative that you grew to understand, the culture that you grew up, yes, there, there are portions of that that have affected how you respond to things. But if the scriptures are true, and if what God's perspective on the whole thing is true, then the problem lies within There's something wrapped around our hearts, our DNA, that does not allow for us to stand in right relationship with God or right relationship with each other. If you've noticed, there's a lot of brokenness in the world. And so when we read these words in Mark's gospel, we are coming out of that encounter with the Pharisees, and Jesus is actually going to back up everything he just said to the Pharisees by the way he lives, not just in what he teaches, So let's read in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile, born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her... First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. Lord, I ask that by your spirit, you'd help us understand how we are to respond to what we have just heard. God, would you open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, and may we hear your voice through the scriptures that you gave to us because you're generous. Would we listen to our maker's words? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, Jesus has just gone through this confrontation with the Pharisees uh, he's taught that if you watch Jesus' teachings continually, it's this condition of the heart that he's dealing with. And he, he always disrupts the religious, but he comforts the sinner. If you notice Jesus' pattern in life, he, he, he rattles people who have put all of their trust and all of the eggs in the basket of their behavior, but then he comforts the one who comes and says, I ain't got any of that. And if you've noticed how he walks, this is consistent with both his message and his life. Jesus walks with people who don't have it all together, and he disrupts those who think they do have it all together. And this will be consistent. So if you're at a place in your journey where you think you have it all together, chances are Jesus is going to rattle your foundation. And if we know the maker's words, the creator's words for our hearts, it's for our good that he does that. But if you come this morning desperate, the amazing thing is the gospel comforts you. So you can approach Jesus in two ways. And this is consistent through the New Testament. It's you can come proud or you can come humble. And friends, come humble. Come humble. And so we see Jesus move beyond talking about food... And how it makes you, uh, how the Pharisees thought it made them unclean, to talking about the heart. Now, Jesus heads to a region that is not. Filled with a bunch of Jewish people, he heads to a Gentile area. He he moves out of where he's at, and we we assume it's because he wanted to get away from the Pharisees. Because when you tick the Pharisees off, they have this little group. They get together and they probably have a text chain. We're going to kill this guy. That's their thought. It's the text chain. Kill Jesus, and they start every time Jesus ticks them off. They have this idea that we need to destroy him, and so we think he may have gone out of town to get away, get away from this, but also to just rest one of the continual things we've seen in the last several weeks is every time Jesus tries to rest he gets interrupted and in the same sense he does here as well so he heads to a Gentile portion of the world and uh, he's interrupted he's interrupted by someone who has no leg to stand on in her approach of Jesus and so let's quickly handle the elephant in the room Because Jesus said that I need to feed the children first. It's not right that the dogs get the food. The children are priority. And I know some of you in this room are so offended by that right now. Like we live in a society that just wants to be offended. Like we do. Some of you are very offended at this statement. And it's okay. You can be. She could have been. But we will watch as we unpack the scriptures, and this is where I want you to be very careful in picking and picking and picking and picking portions of scripture. Because if you, if you are someone who loves literature, you have to understand Genesis to Revelation all in a book. Good Bible study says, I read a passage, I read the passages around that passage. I understand the passages around that passage because of the book that those passages are held in. I read that book in understanding that it's a part of a a New Testament or an Old Testament. And I read the New Testament and the Old Testament knowing that it's a part of a whole book together and Genesis to Revelation. It it sounds like a lot, but here's the deal. If, If this is the Maker's words for His creation, then is it worth knowing that? and digging, and doing the hard work, and studying, and wrestling. If it's not, then don't worry about it. You can nitpick the scriptures and pickpocket the scriptures you like and don't like, then don't worry about it. But if this is Creator's words for creation, then it is worth knowing every word in here. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to wrestle with text. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to not understand something. It doesn't mean that it's going to be super easy to accept everything I read. It just means at the end of the day, God, it's your word over mine. It has to be. Because there's no life without your word. And so for Jesus to say this statement to this young woman, he's actually going all the way back to the garden in this statement. See, in Genesis chapter 3, where this... This this husband and wife team have dropped the ball big time and they have taken the bait and they have said, God, we would rather be you than walk with you. God announces a punishment and a promise at the exact same time that there will be struggle and strife in this life. But there will come a day when the enemy, the deceiver, the lies that he has told will be crushed And it will come in the form of a child being born. And so what you see from Genesis when Adam and Eve have to step out is God fulfilling his promise in the midst of a messy, messy human race. And so you see history play out and the dark things that begin to happen and then you get to just before Noah's days and you read the scripture. Everyone on the earth is doing what's right in their own eyes, and it is filled with evil. And God, you see him wrestling with, going, I just, I regret this. And I know we have people who are like, well, why don't you just start over? Wipe everyone out. Well, see, here's the problem with wiping everyone out. He made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be a child born, the seed of Eve. And if you wipe everyone out, his promise is no longer good. God's promise continues in the midst of our decisions to run from him. And so Noah and his family are spared through a very strange rescue plan, and that is the building of an ark. His family believes that God is doing what he's going to do. They do what he says to do. They get on the boat. And, and obviously, this, this, this story doesn't end very well either. Like They get off the boat, man, and they're just like, whoo! and they just go crazy and it's not a very good ending. They don't tell you the end of Noah and the ark in Sunday school. <laughs> they don't. But we see Noah and, and, and we see Babel and we see all of these things get spread out and things happening in the world but God's promise is still at work. And then we get introduced to Abraham and we see these words in Genesis chapter 12 starting in verse 3. I will bless those who who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt all the families of the earth will be blessed through you so the promise gets a little more descriptive from what we have in Genesis chapter 3 promising the crusher of a serpent where he will come from what he will be how he will come how he will arrive And what we see in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a continuation of this promise to where you actually have Joseph, the story of Joseph, uh, 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 for what his brothers planned for evil, what they planned for harm, God actually used for good. And the rest of the Old Testament is a story of us tracing these 70 people who went down into Egypt before they were slaves. It's a crazy journey to watch. But 400 years later, after Jacob and his family moved to Egypt, God's rescue for them so that they did not die during the famine, 400 years later, Israel's count is in the millions. It's a fascinating journey. It's a fascinating story. It's hard to watch. And God hears the cry of his people, and they are rescued out of Egypt, and a nation is set apart for God. And it's the journey of a grace showing God, showing his people how to reflect him to the nation so that he might be glorified. And the rest of the Old Testament, it's tough to watch. Like the number of times Israel doesn't get it right. The number of times we're like, come on, guys. But yet something in us goes, man, I really connect to that. Because how many times has God showed himself faithful to me and I've just run to the other things. How many times? The Bible has a way of not just telling Israel's story, but telling our story as well. And so what you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament is glimpses and pictures of what this Messiah would look like. This rescuer would look like. And that he would come to the nation of Israel and one day there would be a king who sits on a throne forever. And now if you, if you know human lifespan, we die. Right? Right? I'm still checking on it. I've, I've done the Google search. I think we all we all die, right? So, so when you read a, a description about a king whose throne endures forever, he's not just talking about a family line sticking around. He's talking about there will be a king who sits on that throne forever. A little strange description. But then you start to get these... These descriptions of where he will be born, how he will be born, who he will be born to, what place in the world is he going to be born, what's he going to be like, how's he going to live. You get all these pictures in the Old Testament, but it's just kind of these pictures. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he lets people know that he is the one who's promised in the Old Testament. He is going to be the rescuer for Israel. Now this throws Israel into a tizzy because they were picturing a high horse, Helmets, sword, shield, crushing everyone who might sit opposed to Israel. But it's nothing like that. Jesus says, I came to serve. Well, how's this going to bring us out of anything? Like You came with a mop. You should have come with a sword. Rome's a little tougher than that. Thankfully, Jesus had in mind an enemy much greater than Rome that he was going to destroy. And so you read the the genealogies in Luke chapter 4. I know most of you probably skip over that when you're doing your New Testament reading, right? You don't read the genealogy, do you? You jump over. You're like, oh, that's a bunch of names. I'm not going to read that. You need to be thanking God that there are names there. Because if you are going to spread a lie, you remove details. But if it's the truth, you can give all the details you want I think sometimes we glance over those details and we don't just drop to our knees and worship and say, God, thank you for being in the details. Thank you for not being generalizing and and just kind of going, well, there were some people who had a baby and those people had a baby and those people had a baby. Because that would be easy, right? This is ridiculously hard to do. So you have Luke's account. You have Matthew's account. And we see the announcement that the angels make. Good news. Good news. A savior to you, Israel, has been born today. And then Matthew chapter 10, Jesus continues to affirm this journey just to Israel. He says, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Jesus tells the adulterous woman at the well, he says that salvation is of the Jews. Now, it's amazing that Israel had been wandering as long as they had with bad shepherds. The people of Israel had bad shepherds. God was their shepherd, and they had rejected him in so many ways. And last week, John talked so much about the traditions being piled on to the people's shoulders, and the Pharisees themselves didn't even lift the traditions, lift any of the burdens off the shoulders of the people. Instead of reminding them that they were God's people, they reminded of how of how their traditions, they were breaking and they weren't adding up and they weren't making it and the people were being crushed by this heavy burden. So I want you to know that in Jesus' statement to this Gentile woman, all he is doing is affirming that he is the Messiah and the order in which salvation is to come, the priority of God for his people to hear the message of the good shepherd, even though they reject it. But then Jesus is also doing something in the heart of the Gentile woman, and he is stirring her faith. Now, it's amazing if you continue to read these things. Matthew's gospel has more details than Mark's gospel. What's interesting, and I hope you, that, doesn't, that doesn't like make you go, hmm? Uh, J. Warner Wallace, who is an apologist, and when I say apologist, I don't mean someone who apologizes for being a Christian. I mean someone who defends the faith. Someone who goes, there are evidences that you can look for that you will be able to stand firm on the faith. And one of the things he says, he's a former crime scene investigator. Any crime scene investigators in here? Okay, so none of you are crime scene investigators. Cool. All right. Well. He actually describes the scene when you show up and there has something has happened. And he says, one of the things that as a detective you look for in a crime scene is to separate the witnesses. Keep the witnesses apart from each other because if you come together and all four of them say the exact same words, the exact same verbiage, the exact same thing, chances are they lying. But if you can keep All the witnesses separated, and one perspective says this, and one perspective says this, and one perspective, you begin to get a whole picture. And so with the Gospels, we have what is called the harmony of the Gospels. So Matthew's account is pointed towards more of the Jewish reader. Mark's account is pointed more towards the Gentile reader. And so there are going to be reasons Mark doesn't include all of the things that Matthew does in in his testimony of the Gospel, of what Jesus has done. And so in Matthew chapter 15, we get a little more detail about this story. Verse 22, a Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. This is an interesting statement because she did not know all of the things that all of the Jewish people knew, but somehow she knew that there would be a rescuer. And honestly, I don't know how she found out. We don't know how she found out that the Messiah had shown up. You know what? When you're desperate for your kid, you look everywhere, don't you? Desperation for a child will cause you to look everywhere for anything that you can possibly find some relief for in your child. This woman was at desperation level 100. My guess is she probably went to people who were like, dude, your daughter's done. Forget it. Just get used to living with her possessed by an evil spirit. It's over for her. She probably spent a lot of her money paying witch doctors and you know snake oil salesmen and all the hucksters that existed in the time. Please fix. Please help my daughter. Oh, we got we got an oil for that. We got an essential oil. I mean, we got an oil for that. But she was desperate. And so maybe there had been a Gentile in a crowd when Jesus was speaking to lots of crowds, because Jesus didn't stand up and go, "Uh, Any Gentiles in the room? Oh, Gentiles, you need to leave. I'm just talking to Israel here. So go on. No, he didn't do that. (laughs) He just spoke, and people heard. And I have a feeling that because of how close they were to Jewish cities, there was someone who was like, You know what? I heard about this dude, I saw him teach. I saw him heal. It was crazy. You may have a shot here. And so we see in Matthew's account, she comes announcing that Jesus is the rescuer, son of David, the line of David. In verse 23, this is, we see Jesus' response. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. Oh, the disciples. Wonderful, wonderful people. But in verse 25, we see this woman not give up. But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Mark's account says she fell at his feet. So to be, to be on your face before someone was... Typically a sign of two things, one being reverence, one being mourning, sadness, broken. And in both, both would be true in this woman's case. Completely terrified that her child was going to be resigned to live a life demon-possessed, but also having a severe and high, high respect for who Jesus is and belief that he could actually do what she was asking for. She came at a huge risk and she didn't care about anyone around. Significant to you and I because how many times have we halted our pursuit of Jesus because we care about who's around us? Man, in the line of eternity, we're going to look at his face and we're going to go, it was so stupid of me to think that that seventh grade boy was more important than that That boyfriend or that girlfriend or that job was so much more important in light of getting my life from Jesus, the source of life. See, this woman had nothing to stand on of her own. She was only throwing herself at the mercy of God. Simply because in that day and age, a woman would never approach a rabbi, a teacher. Not going to happen. She was a woman. She had that strike against her in the eyes of the disciples. Second strike, Gentile woman. A woman who had no clue of what it meant to be clean or unclean. If you were a Gentile to a Jew, you were unclean. You were not supposed to be near me. And it wouldn't surprise me if the disciples were like, when she walked in, she had that going against her. Not just was she a Gentile woman, but the area of Tyre was known as a completely pagan place. Worshiping all sorts of gods, doing all sorts of sacrifices, doing all sorts of evil things in the eyes of Israel. So not only was she a woman, but she was a Gentile woman, and she was a bad Gentile woman. And then the last strike against her is if you hang out with devil-possessed people, you too are also unclean. So you talk about having nothing to stand on. This would have made Matthew, the corrupt tax collector, be like, I'm bad, but she's badder. She had nothing to stand on. No status. But she threw herself at the mercy of God. Now, I have heard people say that The reason Jesus granted her what she wanted was because she out him in a battle of wits. Guys, really? Jesus is the word, okay? The dude knows how to put some words together. So, I mean, all in my brain, all I'm seeing is... The children first, then the dogs. Well, you know, the dogs eat the crumbs. Well, you know, that dog cr- if, people, if dogs eat people food, they get diarrhea. Well, diarrhea is a recognition that there's a stomach problem. Oh, if they get diarrhea, they'll poop in the house. Well, if they poop in the house, it means it needs to be cleaned up. I mean, you could have gone on forever and ever and ever and tried to match wits. But it wasn't about matching wits, thankfully. It really was about this woman, humbly and persistently, chasing what only Jesus could do the woman approached Jesus with humility and what she found was to her desperate heart the door of salvation was swung wide open in in Matthew's account verse 28 he says this dear woman your faith is great your request is granted and her daughter was instantly healed you tell me whose story she's going to tell She's going to tell about Jesus. This is why we see the good news as good news. It's because we're desperate people, and what we found was the grace and mercy when we so desperately needed it. See, the scripture does say that when you seek God with all of your heart, you will find him. I think the reason we love coming up with half hearted ideas about who God is is because we're not seeking him with all of our heart. You've never come desperate to God. You've never come desperate to Jesus because you're desperate for something else. And I'm telling you, it is desperate people who find the salvation they long for. Jesus said the very first thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount was blessed are the proud in spirit. It's not what he said. He said, blessed are the proud are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. The comfort comes when desperation is declared. The comfort shows up. The blessing is not that God's going to give you what you want if it's not Him, but He gives you Himself. Like He comes and sits with those who are broken and who are emptied. But if you're like, eh, well, I think the church has perpetuated this idea because we make stupid bumper stickers. The bumper sticker that makes me want to accelerate into the car in front of me is try Jesus. I'll tell you why. There's no trying Jesus. There's no Sam's Club sample table Jesus. It's all him or nothing. We've got a lot of samplers out there. Desperate people find the door of salvation open wide to them. See, in this statement with Jesus making to this woman, he was not tightening the door on salvation. He was actually pointing to how wide the door would be opened. He did not send her away with nothing. But actually, this woman displayed the same faith that would be demanded from you and from me as Gentiles, if that we would believe that he is who he says he is. This woman's interaction with Jesus is a model of humility. Jesus is busy giving bread to the children, and she's walking in going, yeah, keep teaching. These crumbs will do. Yeah, just don't mind me, Jesus. Keep teaching. Even the crumbs off this table are enough for me. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I think I'll I'll be on my way, but don't mind me. The crumbs were enough. This is humility. In this story we see a picture Of a woman entering into this parable She understood who she was But she also understood who Jesus was And so let me ask you a question in this room For those of you who are offended for this woman Where would she be if she followed your advice to be offended? Where would she be if she, if she walked out If you were like Hey you shouldn't let Jesus say things like that Get out of here where would she be if she followed your wisdom? With a sick daughter. You see, there are times when we have to set down our thoughts, our offenses, our, our ideas on things and go, maybe they're not as accurate as I think they are. Because if this woman had walked out offended, how dare he? I'm going to write him an open letter, post it on Facebook, put it on Twitter. i want to blog about it and hopefully Reddit will pick it up and then Huffington Post will, will back me up. Because we love being offended. The beautiful thing of the gospel is Jesus was swinging the door of salvation wide open and had we walked away in arrogance and in pride, we would have missed rescue. We have run from his words because we really do think we have this. This woman knew she did not. So as the band comes and we close this morning, I hope and I pray that you will not run from the desperate heart approach. You see, we don't like the desperate heart approach because we've seen it happen before. We've seen bad relationships. We've seen when we've made mistakes. We've seen when we've screwed up. And we go, you know what? If I can just come back to them not so desperate, I'll make myself look a little better. Because, see, when we come desperate, we hear people go, well, you should have started with me. Right? You should have started with me. I've been telling you this all along. Why did not you start with me? But now, because you're at the end of your rope, you're at the bottom of the barrel, now you're looking to me. Like, that's how we feel when it comes to Jesus, too. And so that's why we say, no, sir, I will not come with a desperate heart. Let me clean myself up. Let me figure out things on my own. And then I won't be so embarrassed to come to God. Then I won't be so embarrassed to come to Christ. Then I won't be so embarrassed to come clean before those that are in my community. Then I won't be so embarrassed. (sighs) There are times where we have to throw all of that aside and say that if Jesus is able to bring life, I have to go there. Jesus is changing things in the way we look at life and salvation and rescue. He's changing how we look at people that have border to us geographically nationally gender race religious belief all of these things cannot be walls that we allow to stand because we understand the gospel in ephesians chapter 2 paul really just swings that door wide open and explains what jesus has done and he says in verse 11 don't forget that you gentiles used to be outsiders You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put To death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Salvation from the Jews, the door open to Gentiles, the door open to you and to me. There is one last put it all out there clip I want to show you, but it's not because of who's in the clip. Go ahead. The only reason I dove is because I saw, I don't know if it was Sean or... Andre, I can't remember which one it was at the top of the key, so I figured if I could get my hand on it and sling it to him, he'd have a wide open layup. I missed the first row and then didn't get quite all the way to the, to the uh, have a soft hand. I don't think they Not at all, it so. Oh. <laughs> now, there are some of you in this room who know your, fe- know the feeling of putting yourself out there in that way. When it comes to falling at the feet of Christ, you know what it means to dive and have the ugly cry. You found the mercy and grace when you needed it most. And you don't care who's been standing around and spectating. But I want to show you an image. Some of you have been standing around for a really long time watching other people lay out at the feet of Christ in desperation. You're the camera person... You've been observing. You've been watching. You've taken mental snapshots or you might even have criticized those who laid it all out there. But if only Jesus is able to heal, only Jesus is able to make whole, why do you delay? Why do you stand as a spectator when someone runs to get new life? Why do you hold out? What are you afraid of? Who are you ashamed or embarrassed of? What, what are you ashamed of and embarrassed of? This woman, I'm telling you, you aren't off as far as she was. And she was met with grace and mercy. What is it that you are holding on to so tightly that you swear this time it'll be different? Will it be? Because I think everyone around you knows it won't. Desperate people see the door of salvation swung wide open to them. Is it your pride? Is it your fear of losing treasures? Lost friendships? Let me just tell you something real quick. If Jesus is who he says he is, then those things you see as treasure will actually lose your soul, not gain it. And is it really friendship if they would stand in your way from knowing real life? Why do you delay? The beauty of the pattern in scripture is that there are people who recognize Jesus. They realize that Jesus can do what he says he can do. They have a belief and they approach only him determined to get nothing but Jesus. And the result is salvation. The result is the mercy and grace we have so longed for The approval and the acceptance we have so longed for and thrown ourselves on things that don't matter in this world, we find only in Christ. And so as we close today, the story goes that Alexander the Great had a general who'd been serving him for many years. And the the story kind of has grown probably over the years, but the general asks Alexander the Great to pay for his daughter's wedding. And Alexander the Great says, well, this guy's been serving me for so many years, I will pay for his wedding. Well, the next day, the treasurer of the kingdom's finances comes to Alexander the Great and says, you must, you must take this general out. He is taking advantage of your kindness. The money he is asking for to throw this type of wedding is ridiculous. He's taking advantage of you and you need to behead him now. Alexander the Great's response to this treasurer is, no, you will give this general what he's asked for because he honors me with the size of his request. This general, A, believes that I'm rich enough to give that much money, and B, believes I'm generous enough to do it. Do you honor Jesus with the size of your request? A, believing that he is big enough and strong enough to save you, and B, that he stands ready to. This morning, as we pray, as we take communion together, Would you honor him by the size of your request? There ain't a bigger request than save me, (laughs) really. And as we walk around this room, and as there's a prayer spot over here, but you can also go and be prayed for by people who will stand over on this side, and they're just ready to pray. They're ready to go to war with you, for you, on your behalf. You may not have any words to say, but just pray for me, and they will And as we take this communion, we look and we recognize this is the request Jesus made of us. Remember me when you take this meal. Remember what? That he saved us. The meal doesn't save us. The bread doesn't save us. The juice doesn't save us. He has saved us. And we are a people who live thankful lives because of that. And I'm going to ask one more response. There may be those of you who have stood in this room before and you've watched people lay themselves out before Jesus. I'm going to stand right over here. And if you've ne- if you've always been the spectator, never the desperate one, I want to stand with you this morning, and I want to pray with you for you, and journey with you in that process. God, we love you, and I ask that in these moments, you be glorified. We know it's your Spirit that awakens our hearts to our need for you, and we want to rejoice with those in this room who say, I know I need him. I'm done running. I'm done striving. I'm done with pride. I'm done with ego. I'm done with all of those things. And I am desperate. And if I don't get to Jesus, I'm done. Jesus, thank you that desperate people find the door of salvation swung wide open. It's in your name we pray.